0: So will read 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 through 12. When you hear this, you may think, I've heard this before. And there are many similarities between this chapter and chapter 24. And I'll call your attention to some of those, but there are also some differences. I want especially to draw out for you the way in which David was learning to wait upon the Lord in the midst of this very similar trial with King Saul. This is God's word. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hachalah opposite Jeshemon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakala, which is opposite Jeshamon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army, now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zerui, son of, or brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. I'll pause there, there's more to this in the following verses. Waiting can be difficult. Uh, maybe they, uh, uh, maybe as a, as a child or a, uh, some of the children in the church right now would say to their mom, Mama, I'm hungry. Is it time to eat? And they say, you need to wait a little bit. It's, it's coming. We'll have lunch soon. Or maybe you'll look at the clock and say, boy, this sermon is long. I can't wait that long for for lunch. It's not just for children that it's hard to wait, is it? There are lots of things that we have to wait for. There's even a phrase that is often used to defer gratification, to not act on some desire that you have right now so that a better good may be achieved. We wait for those things. We save up to purchase a home. We wait for marriage to enjoy the, uh, uh, the, the sexual intimacy that God has designed for marriage. There's a, a waiting that God often has for us. Whether it be impulse spending, or binge-watching or gratifying other desires, though, we do not like to wait. We want what we want, and we want it right now. We've been following David. We've been following the path of his life and uh, and the growth of grace that can be seen in him. Now, Surely his path has not been a, a straight-line, upward path, The honesty of the Christian life is one that has many ups and downs. So like David, we experience these as well, the the faith that is sometimes expressed and the fear that often overwhelms us. In this passage today, David demonstrates what it means to wait on the Lord. And it's a demonstration that, that shows development in his life. I mentioned that this is a second time where David has this opportunity to kill Saul. It's, it is so similar to chapter 24 that there are actually some, uh, some scholars who say, well, it w- this can't have actually happened. It's a, they're telling this story a second time for some reason. I could see maybe David letting Saul go once, but twice? Really? Well, yes, Really? And there's a reason for it. And we're going to think about that today because God has brought it to us a second time. And there is a nuance, there's a difference, there's a development in David that revolves around this very important Christian practice of waiting on the Lord. While we look at that, we're also going to notice that Saul grows too, but he grows in sin. We'll start there and then turn to look at David's growth and his coming to understand and exercise his faith in waiting on the Lord. So let's look at Saul. This grievous, tragic character continues to go from bad to worse. After the interlude with Nabal and Abigail, David goes back to Judah. God sent him there. It really wasn't an interlude, was it? God was training him even there. He was training him to put to death his own selfish desires, to put to death his pride and his anger so that he would wait on the Lord. He learned this through Nabal and Abigail. And so now when God sent him back to Judah, he goes. He goes back to the wilderness of Ziph, the very same place where Saul had had attempted to kill him before. Well, why? Did he go there? Didn't he know that, that he was vulnerable? Well, God had sent him there. God said, go back to Judah, and so he went. This is part of the growth of grace. But just like before, the people of Ziph betrayed him again. It's almost as if they're reading from the same script. They go to Saul, and they told him, is not David hiding himself in our country? He's in our backyard. You can find him. Here's his address. He's in the wilderness of Ziph near Hakala. You would think that Saul, in his previous brush with death, his encounter with the Lord through David's hand would say to the Ziphites, get out of here! I've recognized that the Lord is is raising up David, and I'm stepping aside. Don't don't tempt me that way. But Saul falls right back in to his same sins. And the commentator Phillips calls this Saul's depravity. His advanced depravity even. Describes it this way, a man in his sin is ever ready to commit evil. And all the more true of men and women who exercise great power, privilege, and authority. When this temptation comes to Saul, he he just falls right back into it and he gathers his trained soldiers and he goes out into the field to chase down David. You see, without the Spirit, Saul didn't have that foundation of grace. And therefore, he didn't have the faith or the will to fight against these old sins. And Saul knew better. In the first encounter, he admitted that David had acted righteously towards him. He knew better. He knew that he had acted unrighteously towards David. That David didn't deserve to be treated the way that he had treated him. And he admitted that David would surely be raised up to be the next king. He admits as much here in this second encounter later, but knowing better doesn't necessarily lead to acting better on Saul's part. Sin is like that. You know what is right and good. You know better. You even know the consequences. And how often, though, do you ignore your conscience and go right ahead into that temptation? Saul is a different case in point because we know by scripture that the Lord removed his spirit from Saul. We know that Saul is not a believer, so there there is no foundation or grace for him to stand on. But that tendency of sin is the same for us as, as believers. God has given us a conscience so that we do know better. And yet, how often we do sin against that conscience. And this will contrast with David, who waited on the Lord. He waited to become king instead of gratifying immediately what he wanted. Saul, on the other hand, was ruled by his sinful and selfish desires. So much so that he had the audacity to fight against the Lord himself because God had promised that David would be the next king, and Saul knew that. He had blessed David over and over again. God had protected David over and over again. He had thwarted Saul over and over again. And still, Saul returns to the same evil desires and passions. And sin is like that too. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense, and yet when you give rein to sinful desires in your life, those sins will take you down a road that just doesn't make sense. And you'll find yourself embroiled in behavior that you would, would abhor if you would step out of yourself and look. And yet, when you are ruled by your own passions, rather than waiting on the Lord, when there's when you give yourself over to those desires, you'll find that your greed is never satisfied. That that purchase that you found while scrolling and scrolling and scrolling on the internet that you made that that won't satisfy you. In fact, you get it in the mail and you're scrolling for something else that will make you happy. And neither does that lust that you harbor in your heart. And neither does the anger or jealousy or bitterness. And you know that. You know better when you give rein to your sin, you'll find that you act like a crazy man or woman, that you act in accord with those desires. You need to pay attention to this warning from Saul that sin tends to grow and grow and go from bad to worse. You cannot hide it. You cannot manage it. It will devour you. David learned this too. Right in the middle of these two very similar circumstances, we find David almost devoured by his own desires. He is enraged by the slight and the sin that he had that Nabal had brought against him, so enraged that he was about to commit mass murder until he was stopped by God through Abigail. So David learned to wait upon the Lord. He was growing in grace as well. And that's where we'll turn now. Here's the setting. In the first time that David had a chance to kill Saul, it was something of a chance encounter, wasn't it? David was hiding, and Saul came into the cave. The opportunity was presented to him. But there is a difference now, isn't there? Saul has come to the wilderness of Ziph. David is still hiding. He has to send out spies to confirm that he's there. And then David intentionally goes to look over the campground to see if this is actually Saul that is here, if he's actually come to to, to hunt him down once more. And the question that, uh, that has to come to mind is, well, well, why would he do this? And why in the world would he go down into the camp itself? And the answer has to be that He is coming to understand the promises of God and what it means to wait on him. He's coming to understand that the Lord had said, David, you will be the next king. I have anointed you for that. And much like that initial expression of faith that David expressed when he ran to fight against Goliath, he's starting to apply that as well in the, in the rest of his life. Where he had run from Saul and hid from Saul before, he comes to seek him out. And this was already a beginning in the earlier, earlier fashions where when David left Saul in that first encounter, he didn't just run and hide, but he called out. And he sought peace with Saul. And there seems to be a similar desire that is expressed As David pursues Saul, this is not a chance encounter. He decided to go down into the camp. It says that he he would know where Saul lay. He was a a man of war. He understood how, how how that encampment would be laid out. The important men were in the center. That's the command central, the rest of the camp around. So he goes to two of his mighty men and says, who will go with me? Himelech or Abishai, his nephew, nephew through his sister Zeruiah, And he, he goes and he gets a companion to go with him. And Abishai goes. And they sneak down into the camp and Abishai says, says this. This is God's hand. God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. I can take care of this. And it will only need for me to take that spear and to use it once. All your prayers are answered. I want you to think about how tempting that must have been for David. There is some similarities again here. Uh, The His companions had urged him before, but now that opportunity is presented once more and David's hands would, in a sense, be clean. He could argue to himself, I didn't raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. But like before, David refuses to kill Saul and he refuses for Abishai to do it for him and he gives three reasons for that decision. The first is that Saul was the Lord's anointed. And this runs through David's answer before, and so I'll be briefer here. David respected what God had done. The Lord had appointed Saul to be the king. And so it wasn't for David to remove him. He respected the office. He respected the institution of the king that comes from God. And so his conclusion was this. To fight against Saul was to fight against the Lord. We've made that point before, that Saul was fighting against David and was fighting against the Lord. The same is true the other way around, and David understood this. I'd like to note in this case that the New Testament confirms this. It reinforces the principle that civil government has been instituted by God. It's his authority by which our governors, our rulers, our presidents, our kings rule. He has designed society to have rulers who will accomplish his appointed tasks. Romans thirteen even says that the that our governors are the Lord's ministers, that they are ministers of God to to uh, to punish evildoers because of that we are to obey those rulers as they uh, as they rule for God now rulers are accountable to God and uh, and we are uh, we cannot be required to sin and that's a whole huge, wonderful topic that we can get into later. But for now, the starting point is that God instituted civil government. And our default position is to obey those who are over us. To obey them for our good and the good of our country. And with this conviction, David could wait on the Lord and not raise his hand against Saul. He even says that if someone does that, how could they be held guiltless? Which leads to a second answer that David gives. He answered in a way that shows he understood that personal revenge was sinful. That personal revenge was the sin of anger and of murder. David had learned this from Abigail. He learned it in his own experience of how he was overwhelmed by his own sinful desire to take matters into his own hands. And with Saul, the sin against David was even greater than what Nabal did, so that urge to take revenge must have been even weightier. But David took counsel from God and addressed that to himself, that his desires must must be in line with God's word. And that to take revenge was guilty before the Lord. That he could not be guiltless by that. He could have said, I have a right to be angry. But it found that that anger expressed in sinful revenge was not something that he could do which leads to the third conclusion or the third argument that David makes, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And this this is where just the the progression of these three chapters is, is so beautiful because he learned this especially from Abigail, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's hinted at in chapter 24, it's hinted at as, as David says, as, uh, uh, that, that the Lord will judge between you and me. But listen to what he says now. As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish, for the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. It's as if he says, God will take care of me, and God will take care of Saul. Remember Nabal? Do you remember what happened to Nabal? His day for death came. And in God's providence, it was, uh, there was an immediacy about that so that David would understand the sovereignty of God. And the text very clearly says that the Lord struck Nabal down. The Lord struck him, so he died. And David is growing in grace in this expression. He's growing in this understanding that the Lord would indeed be judge and that the Lord would vindicate him and would not allow Saul to get away with murder. And so having seen the sovereign Lord act against Nabal, he could understand this context in his own day and in his own history, that the Lord was ruling over everything that happened, and that even though Saul was coming, going back on his words and coming back to try to chase down, down David, David could wait upon the Lord. He might die of old age. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. They might be killed in battle. But his day would come. And that day would be the Lord's day. It would be the Lord's judgment that was being exercised. So how could David wait on the Lord did so by putting the Lord first over his own desires, over his own plans, over his own reputation. He reasoned with himself from those promises of God. That if the Lord intended for him to be king, then the Lord would do it. And if wickedness stood in in his way, then the Lord would clear his path. Once more from Phillips. Alas, into how many sins and even crimes have men been, been betrayed through unwillingness to wait for God's time? Alas, how often we are unwilling to wait for God's time. By way of application, let me give two ways of waiting upon the Lord. First of all, wait on the Lord by dying to self. Saul's sin and his progressions in sin give a warning that you must treat sin seriously, treat it as a, a, a deadly and affliction and temptation. Understand its nature to lead you to be more and more calloused about sin in your life. Be aware of its tendency to deceive you that you can manage it, that it's just a little sin. Be especially warned that if you're cavalier about sin, that it can lead you into worse and worse. But as a believer, God has given you his Holy Spirit to battle against that. He has given you a spirit so that you would deny yourself and follow after Christ as you wait on him. You see, the Lord loved you so much that he will not let that sin have its sway in your life. And he clothes you with forgiveness. And he clothes you and armors you with his word and with his spirit so that you can stand against the evil day. And that same Lord who justifies you and forgives your sin is also at work in you by his spirit to put to death the old self and to put on Christ. So wait on the Lord by dying to self, by putting aside and offering up those ambitions and those desires and directions in your life so that you would follow Jesus. Secondly, wait on the Lord in this way. Wait on the Lord by fixing your eyes upon his promises and upon the person of our savior. As you read over what David says, you'll find that David refers to the Lord of the Covenant, the capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. And he refers to him over and over, and over, and over, and over, five times, he calls upon the covenant Lord. And there's a reason, I think, for that. The battle that's going on is over his selfish desires. And and the weight of that is something that we have we've tried to understand. And so David, in the midst of that, is. Reminding himself, and he's reminding and he's reminding us that, that the Lord knows. The Lord sees all of this, and you can trust him. And so he puts the Lord first over all of his desires, over all of his own plans of how he might come to be king, over his reputation. He was denying himself and offering himself to follow after the Lord. And you do as well as you wait upon the Lord. You fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ and remind yourself of who your Lord and Savior is, and especially in the midst of temptation and trial, especially as you find that you're going down that path of crazy because of that sin that you're giving rain to. Remind yourself that your Savior has called you to follow him, to deny yourself, to put to death those those sinful desires. And wait on the Lord by reminding yourself of how God has been good to you. David could look back to that first encounter in the cave. He could look back at how the Lord had delivered him Livered then. He could look back on, on the unexpected peace that he was able to have with Saul. Wonder of wonders. He was able to appeal to Saul and in that moment to have some reconciliation. And He could look back and, and he could look to this situation and know that, that the Lord had, uh, had intervened, causing a sleep to fall on all of those men. They could look back at Nabal and say, the Lord was at work there by sending Abigail over and over again. And while waiting on the Lord, you can remind yourself of the Lord's faithfulness. You may not see it right now, but God has been with you. And God is with you. You can remind yourself of his presence and his promises. And take God's word with you as you do that. Psalm 34 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around all who fear him. He delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who trust in him. Follow that invitation in the midst of the trial to see the angel of the Lord, to see Christ with you. Or Psalm 27 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That's my exhortation to you today. Wait on the Lord. I'll say it again. Wait on him, be of courage, he will strengthen your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, far too often we lose sight of you in the midst of our troubles. And we give rein to our own selfish desires. And our plans for self-preservation or promotion tend to go, not tend, they do go awry and tend to go from bad to worse. God, forgive us. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from these evil desires. Oh God, I pray that you would teach us the practice of denying ourselves and waiting upon you. Teach us in the midst of our trials to look to our Savior and know that you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Wait on the Lord, I say. That's the close of Psalm 27. That's where we'll turn to close our service today. Psalm 27D. Full of faith and looking to our God of the promise. Let's sing Psalm 27D. Please stand to sing.